Welcome to the Writing and Literacies podcast. Um, my name is Alex Corbett. I'm Gemma Cooper-Novak. And I'm April Camping. And today we're speaking with the new editorial team of the journal Equity and Excellence in Education, Dr. Liscott, Dr. Green, Dr. Ojito, and Dr. Coles. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much Thank you. for having us. Thank you. We're all at the podcast, huge fans of your work, both with the journal and your leadership more broadly. Um, and your inaugural issue set an exciting tone uh, for what is to come for the journal. For example, your kitchen table dialogue and the Zoom kitchen uh, table launch um, modeled what it means to build community and draw from intergenerational wisdom and center the joy that brings you to the work of education, scholarship, and racial justice. Um, as an editorial team, how did you all come together to build journal community? And do you have any stories about how it all came together and how it got started between you all? This is uh, usually my question to answer. Well, uh, laughing and smiling. I'll jump in after yeah, Dr. J. Okay. Um, so first of all, we're all uh, members of um, different cohorts. Some of us in the same cohort of Cultivating New Voices um, of emerging scholars of, scholars of color with NCTE. And that is where I first came into community with uh, Justin and Esther and was able to witness their work and their genius in a way that resonated with me very deeply. Um, I, upon coming to UMass, because Keisha had been a part of previous cohorts, people were just in my ear like, Keisha Green is there, Keisha Green is there. I'm like, all right, I get you, I got you. And um, I, you know, I've of course been familiar with Keisha's work and inspired by it as well. And then, you know, when we, when I did get a chance to reach out, it was kind of like the rest was history. And, and I would say that, like, I love that you asked the question, like as friends, I, I like that you put that first because it was very much a spirit led, um, more of like a friendship, kinship kind of bond that led me to say, hey, Justin, hey, Esther, hey, Keisha, would you all like to collaborate on this endeavor? Because I know that as individuals, you are committed to shifting the culture of the field in a certain way. I'm personally inspired by your work and how you walk through the world and um, how, how that's actualized. And I just feel a calling. Like I just feel something that is, I, I think in our African diasporic consciousness, there is something deeper than just what's material and what's always obvious. And I see that moving through the way that all three of my friends and colleagues move through the work and the world. And that drew me to them and um, sparked the possibility that we could build something very powerful here. So I'll stop here because that's my version of the story. Um, and I'm sure other folks have uh, thoughts to chime in on. I love that story. I'll never get tired of hearing that story. That's all. That's all again. Likewise. <laughs> I'll just add, I'll just add that uh, Dr. J is such a dreamer and uh, makes things come to fruition. And we were in the midst of building a center that was based on, on a vision she had. And it was, it was sort of like, let's build a center and <laughs> let's pre-tenure faculty um, pitching, you know, a proposal to have a four person editorship, which is, you know, sort of unprecedented. So again, just sort of a testament to, um, you know, dreaming and believing and building something together as friends and colleagues and making it come together. 
Yeah, and I'll jump in. Um, it's really thinking about the idea of uh, fostering community. I know something that has been sort of central to that is this idea of collaborative processes that I think often just gets lost in the um, academy. Um, and I think what, when Jamila tells that story, you know, what we learn is that while we all encountered each other sort of as individuals uh, to Keisha's point, um, there was a, a vision I think that she was able to see sort of beyond us as individuals and sort of what might the power be if we actually blend that together. Um, and that has been so important to me uh, as friends and colleagues, like learning that. And I think coming from a, a world, right, where it's all about individuality and then being launched into a career where it's all about individuality and kind of being forced to, to push against that and to see that there is a different way to live. Um, and then one thing I wanna say why it's appropriate uh, for sort of the story that I bring within this that we're doing this for writing and literacies um, is that, and I've never said this, this to these three, but I, I met them all three separately through their own sort of literacies. Um, and so Keisha, I was in uh, Django Paris's course at Michigan State and we read Double Dutch Methodology. And I was like, oh wait, you can, you know, like you can bring in like your life, you know, into like the work. Um, and so uh, Jamila, believe it or not, um, before I even knew who uh, she was, I saw uh, her TED talk, Three Ways to Speak. Um, English and I was like, I'm going to be in community with that person one day. Um, and then Esther, it's so important that her um, work, how she talks about the, the poetics and aesthetics of like black cultural knowledge, because I feel like in many ways that's how I met her through sort of her embodied literacy. So even now on this call, if you meet Esther, she sort of shows up in the way that just uh, ex exudes cultural, not like black cultural knowledge, and it makes you want to sort of learn more and sort of be transformed. And so that's my own personal story that I've always wanted to share with those three, but this was a perfect opportunity because the, the, their literacies, right, um, is how I began to foster community. And I think you'll see that in how we lead this journal as literacy scholars or literacy adjacent scholars, so. And that was so beautiful, Dr. Cole. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thank you for that. That's lovely. I love that story too. Um, I just, I want to, while that's appropriate too, I just want to, I want to add one more thing to Jamila's story that's important here in terms of how she shared it. So even in her sharing of our origin story in this space, she framed, she framed her noticing of us as noticing genius. And I think that's really important because it's, it's not a, it's a that's not a, a noticing that comes from, because I know Jamila, I can say this confidently, it's not a noticing that comes from ego, it's a noticing of knowledges that people are bringing to the table, of the deep awareness that they have, um, it's a noticing of their epistemologies. And so she was able to notice that, and in, in a number of ways, um, think about how bringing those knowledges together, bringing, those genius, bringing the geniuses that each of us embody together would create something larger. So I think that language and even of, of the thing that, 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 that drew her to us as genius is really important for um, us as we are engaging with writing and literacy and trying to notice that genius in what we're reading. As, as editors, as you kind of extend the, the, friend, the friendship and the, the family and engage in these kitchen table uh, conversations with other scholars and folks who have maybe shaped your thinking, what is, have there been any stories behind that process or moments where you all come together and you're like, oh my God, this is, you know, amazing or kind of a dream? I think those moments, the, the oh my God moments come up every week when we meet. <laughs> 
in various ways. I think that um, one particular, oh my goodness, moment was around our development of the aims and scope. So, you know, that process of thinking about the vision, going from, you know, going from knowing that we were holding something delicate and important and um, we were holding a seed of something. Each of us were holding, were, 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 we were, our hands together were holding the seed and trying to figure out what we would need to do, how we would need to plant that seed and nurture it and grow it, how we would need to language um, what it is that that seed held into an aims and scope. Um, that was a that was a really interesting process. And but when we arrived, and 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 not a linear process, but when we arrived at the end of it with the aims and scope, I know for me, my reaction to reading, reading it, reading the actual aims and scope with Jamila, um, like she was the person who pulled the different pieces together, quite fitting, actually, now I'm realizing that in this moment, um, as, the, as she's the person who sort of holds our origin story. So she was the person who pulled together um, our words, the words that we had, the different perspectives we had and that we offered to the aims and scope. But reading that document and seeing how it came together was definitely for me, uh, Wow, there's something here that's that's happening that's really powerful that's embedded within these words. I would say for me, um, two two moments. Well, the the launch event um, that was just such a huge moment um, to see everything be actualized, to see the possibilities of how this vision might walk through the world, and to have people show up and break form in a way that we want to epitomize in everything that we do. And then to hear how people experience that breaking a form as almost like finding a space of home and comfort and refuge in an academy that otherwise doesn't allow for us to feel at home in these ways. Um, that was very powerful for me and I believe for us collectively. And then the second time, the second thing is that um, Dr. Dillard invited us to her course to speak to her grad students and again, what we are, the things that cohere us and the things that draw us together are bigger than us. And so somebody like Dr. Dillard, the way that she exists and the way she has had her hands in our lives, either directly or indirectly, um, represents what it means to be a part of a legacy, what it means to be a part of a, of a lineage, what it means to be a part of the collectivity of this work. And so being in that space with her and naming for the students some of this, like how we came together and what we're thinking, like something about that, because we're, we were so, we're so, I said to the students, we said to the students, picking up on what Dr. Gloria Latin Billing said in the launch, that there's a difference between the job and the work. And sometimes it feels like the job can threaten the work, right? And so we be in the work, I mean, sorry, we be in the job sometimes and don't always have time to articulate and feel into the work and name it. So being in that space was, was very powerful for me because it kind of called me back to the work of it all, even though we are, you know, we have the task of the, the job in our everyday lives. I guess that leads to the next question, which is what, what is the work of the journal? What's your vision for the journal and for what comes beyond it? What, meaning what the future of education and scholarship might look like? I think I can jump in and I'll, I'll start in a way that I think will invite um, 
others to kind of join. I, I think when you, when you think about where we're going and Esther talking about the new aims and scope, I think the vision is rooted in, in you know, I think for us for it, we wouldn't consider it radical, but may, maybe other people would, but it's this idea that the knowledge that we actually think we want to know actually does not live inside the academy um, like at all. We just all happen to have gone through these, you know, schooling spaces and, you know, we've learned how to say things like very pretty um, and to investigate the literatures uh, and, and really just to do what people are doing across the world in very uh, organic ways and natural ways, uh, but without sort of putting perhaps a, a pretty bow on it. And so I think that's really, at least when I think about uh, our overarching vision is really that how do we uh, reframe what matters, right? Who, who matters in terms of speaking up and uh, sort of leveraging, leveraging that or sort of centering it in ways that sort of help to uh, transform and I think uh, speaking from my own uh, politics, particularly about schools and education now about sort of the limits of the institutions that are sort of just entrenched or sort of embedded with racism, uh, sexism, um, capitalism, you know, heteropatriarchy, everything right to, to really sort of change when we have people who are in the world experiencing these things in real time who are doing the work as Jamila is talking about to change. But you know those voices don't get placed in, perhaps because there uh, sort of are linguistic differences or regional differences, or uh, we just don't think they are sort of genius, uh, and they are. And so I think that is hopefully what we're trying to, to to show. And in both in I think content and in form, which is why I think the the way the editorial was written was so important. So it's not just the voice, but it's you know. Uh, I think I think about the classroom, sorry, very quickly, like when students may speak differently and sort of an educator may act as if they cannot understand the student at all, or if a student comes in dressed differently, we sort of discount them. Uh, and, and that is the sort of real knowledge, right? But um, since it doesn't look like we want it to look, we, we don't do it, so. I appreciate that, that, that last part or that part right there. Um, that's one of the things I think that draws me and endears me um, the more we work together. I'm so inspired by our thinking about uh, disrupting form. So I'm inspired by that personally and hope that you know collectively we're inspiring others in the field. So personally, I'm inspired by that because it feels like in my own walk, there's rarely a moment that I don't think about any of the issues that we contend with um, uh, narrowly. So, you know, I think about it from art and culture, you know, so when I think about issues that we're grappling with, there's always sort of either attending to literature or attending to poetry or attending to music and attending to visual art um, and, and embodied ways that we experience the issues. And so I feel like in my own walk, that's a tension that I walk in the academy. And it feels like through this journal, we might be able to model and demonstrate and sort of create possibilities where, you know, there's an intellectual home or intellectual center that does all of those things. And, you know, I think in part does what Justin is offering up that we show what it's like to center the young person that is coming in the classroom, perhaps 
you know, speaking or dressing or whatever in ways that um, conventionally, in, in, in terms of convention and tradition or um, uh, the ways that we think about what scholarship should look like, right? So we, we have these ideas about what a good student should look like or sound like. And I'm hoping that we refuse that and you know model out what scholarship, what the possibilities are for what scholarship might look like and feel like. You know, we're just as we're just as attuned to what it feels like to read a piece, um, not just you know are all the right parts there. And so that that really speaks to me personally, and I and I I think that's a, a one of the major offerings we might as a collective um, have on the field. In in thinking about. Um the impact on, on the field, you know, the broader impact or how, how you might think um, researchers could respond to this work of disrupting or complicating or advancing. Um, what does that look like in terms of expanding boundaries for, for what counts as literacy scholarship or education scholarship in general? I think we came up against the reality that it has to be I don't know what the word is. The word holistic is coming up for me, but it's not the right word, like very thorough. So for example, we're like hype about curating a certain body of scholarship. Like we have this aim and score. We're like, all right, the next thing that has to happen is that the right kind of aligned scholarship needs to come in. We'll curate it, we'll publish it. But then we realize this kind of scholarship, if it's not valued by our reviewers, is then not going to be meaningfully um, assess for lack of a better word or meaningfully engage with in the peer review process in a way that can add substance and value to what we're trying to do. So now we're like, oh, we also need to um, lead in such a way that our pool of reviewers is expanding what literacies and knowledges matter in the field. We also have people who wish to submit in ways that break form but don't have quite those that skill set yet or don't feel the freedom or audacity to do that you know and so it just became very clear that like oh there's levels to this because it's just you know it sounds nice to be like all right this is the aims and scope let's get it but if nothing comes in um with that kind of alignment and if as things go out our reviewers are not primed or prepared to receive that in a particular way and engage with it in a particular way, then it, it kind of fractures the process. So I say the field, like we have work that we're trying to do, but then there's also a broader responsibility for the field to also be pushing the bounds of what matters as scholarship so that we can, kind of, we can do this, not in a silo, but be in a collective commitment to what, what this could look like. So I can, I'll take up the question you posed about how we might um, expand our understandings and visions of writing and literacies. I come out of the humanities. So my background, I was in undergrad, I was an English major and I'm actually working on an MFA now. And so in creative writing. And so one of the um, creative nonfiction writing. And so one of the things that was really interesting and surprising to me when I moved into the academy as a doctoral student was how terrible a lot of the writing is just in, like structurally like it's just you know because so, so the the i think in some ways the bar for academic writing is um 
really low when we think about the, the writing itself. And yet the writing that folks are doing outside of their academy, in schools, in communities, um, my gosh, it's so rich. It's so rich. And so it's interesting to me that we don't draw more explicitly on that and that even in courses that we teach in, 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 in the academy that take up writing and literacies, we don't necessarily start from the place of thinking about the craft of writing itself and reading people who talk about writing to try to understand what writing itself is. So reading what Baldwin has to say about writing, what Morrison has to say about writing, because that to me is in, in, in many ways, a, a place where we, we need to orient ourselves so that we understand the thing itself that we're trying to deconstruct, right? So it's hard to break form when you don't fully understand the form or you, or you only understand the form as one thing. So to, on a really granular level, my response to that question is I think that in the academy, we need to do more reading about writing. We need to read writers writing about writing and really try to understand um, how they think about the writing and how writing for folks, how writing is thinking. Writing is not just about the conveying certain information in, in a descriptive way. It can be incredibly powerful when it's used as a way to think. So yes, I, I, I would just say that the place to start again at a very granular level is, is reading more, like reading read and reading outside of our comfort zone. So as much as I love, you know, I, I love Toni Morrison. I'm, you know, I love writers. I also read people like Maggie Nelson and, and Leslie Jameson who break form um, and who like they're right. There's something about their writing that's really complex. So I think that there are lots of lessons we can learn by turning our attention to um, writers themselves. And I'll just add to that a lot of the creativity that comes, that that is um, shown by writers like, you know, of course, Baldwin and Morrison are legends, but we have genius in our own classrooms. And so if we take, if we look at how our students are writing, they're trying to, um, to think through their writing, I think there are lots of lessons we can learn there too. If we use those as text, as things that we are grading, um, really to pay attention to the form and the way that they're engaging um, the writing itself, I think there's so much, so much that we could learn. And speaking about just the different contexts where, you know, literacies take take place, education takes place, and learning takes place. Uh, how does, how can we in education scholarship get at those, um, those spaces and those areas and elevate them in terms of, um, you know, the classroom context, or whereas that's maybe more of the central focus is the classroom context and the research. How can we also get at those different spaces and places where learning is taking place and where literacies are happening. I think, go ahead. Uh, no, I would, in part, I was um, thinking about what's happening in the chat. So, you know, I know this is a podcast, clearly uh, audio will be <laughs> what you hear. Um, so I hope there's some way to convey what's, what's happening in the chat, because I think in some ways it speaks back to what April is asking or, or you know, encouraging us to, to think about. Um, and um, briefly, I was just thinking that as we as we vision out and uh, engage in the work that is editing this journal, Triple E, I hope that we continue our conversations that have looked. Um, we've had conversations about how do we invite voices alongside some of the contributions that come to the table. So you know, thinking about what 
Esther just mentioned about being from the humanities and knowing that, and, and also Justin knowing, Justin knowing that much of what the four of us consume is outside of the field of education, then how is that more represented in the journal? And so, you know, I, I think that that's also something we're thinking a lot about. How do we hold space for and provide space for scholars who are doing that kind of work? And then also thinking about how we as editors might shepherd work that we um, plan to publish, um, shepherd work in a way that invites authors to think about how they might do that with their work. So that's why I was thinking about the chat. So I think that there's great work out there where you know, we're, we're engaged in, in great work. And I think that we haven't um, perhaps had modeling or coursework, you know, classes that have allowed for us to, to be taught or engage or practice what it means to break form or what does that mean? And what does that look like? Or have that invitation or freedom to engage in those ways. And so I think um, what Jamila was saying earlier about realizing as editors, there's also some fair amount of scaffolding that is happening as we're doing this work um, to create that invitation and space for folks, the, the authors who are contributing good work. And there's possibilities for ways that uh, the work might invite uh, cross-discipline, interdisciplinary perspectives, but also you know, having more images and poetry and verses um, as a part of the work. So that, um, again, I just, I feel like it's exposure, um, exposure to what the possibilities might be, even if, you know, we're having to sort of think through and build that as we're in motion, um, you know, which feels like a lot, <laughs> but I'm excited to, to be engaging in that way. I'm thinking about relationships and refusal. Like I'm thinking about the fact that organic relationships have to happen with communities in order for us to meaningfully engage with the literacies and the liter the lives that, that are being lived into in, in various spaces. Um, and that there's also room to refuse uh, the project of schooling and the academy to even have access to some of those things, particularly because, you know, when we throw around the notion of literacies and broadening it, one of the things that I think can become eclipsed is the fact that the, the reality that literacies are not broadened is very violent. It's rooted in white supremacy and colonialism in a way that has real material ramifications in the lives of um, historically marginalized groups. And so, this idea that we might just kind of like open the door and there'll be like this floodgate of safety and you know people will feel even emotionally and psychologically safe enough to show up fully i feel like there's more to it than that you know um so even with framing this as a kitchen table dialogue and it, that kind of trying to create a space of refuge a sacred a sanctuary kind of space where people do feel at home enough to is this a safe space for me to, to let down my guard? Because I can't do that if I wanna pass my comps or I can't do that if I wanna get the job, right? And so I think, I think we have to really think about what it means to be in organic relationships so that people feel safe enough to open up those possibilities, to understand that those possibilities can be affirmed here because it doesn't always feel like it. Um, and then that's just connecting me to one of our board members gave us the advice of um, uh, putting the journals in local community organizations and bookstores. 
like actually being in community with spaces with the work and we want we want people in those spaces to care about what the what the journal has to say and i think it's more of that that makes it makes this other thing possible and i i just think we have to be mindful of of the violence that happens otherwise in in most iterations of our lives when it comes to literacies and how we have to show up i just want to jump in quickly um cuz i well, when everyone was talking and thinking about the work that we're doing, I keep thinking about this idea of like reclaiming or reclamation. So I, I'm of the belief that, uh, you know, being in a world naturally uh, that every we are all sort of creative people uh, and sort of that creativity is what fuels our sort of understandings of the world and like our literacies. Um, and so sort of thinking about uh, David Kirkland and this idea that sort of the substance of black life is like black textualities, like sort of how we document our lives and sort of share that documentation with the world. So I think about someone like me, similar to I think all of the editors, all of us here, uh, we sort of all have these uh, creative leanings, right? Whether it's sort of uh, art or like photos. I think all of us are like obsessed with <laughs> sort of photos and things. Um, and that's something that I've, I've always had. And, uh, I went to the academy and I, there wasn't really a way for me to sort of fuse those. And so in grad school, I just started submitting papers with pictures. Um, and I think to this point about reclamation and, and trust that J Jamila's talking about, like we had to demonstrate that in our editorial to let people know that this is sort of a space to do that. Cause I think often what happens is people will say something but then that doesn't translate. And so I think one of our responsibilities is going to be to keep doing that and to keep showing uh, that, hey, even this is a process for us of how do we sort of take back who we are uh, and sort of the, the ways that we document and sort of historicize our textualities. And so if we think about our first editorial, I think it was so important as we were trying to name the stuff that we sort of all sort of reached back and sort of showed those sort of uh, younger selves that did have that core sort of passion uh, and sort of that just natural literacy uh, sort of leaning inclinations to put out into the world and sort of how do we uh, not even do a tug and pull with uh, journals or sort of scholarship but like completely cut the rope and just say hey I'm doing this because I can and this is my life uh, and sort of I want to so I think that is something I'm thinking about uh, in terms of this just reclaiming that and sort of really inviting uh, scholars to to do that work. Um, but as everyone has mentioned, it's hard, right? I think it's scary. Um, will it get published? Will people cite it? You know, all these things that we have to think about. Another good transition. So I'm just going to jump it forward. What advice do you have for new scholars and new educators? I think I'm going to answer that question by connecting to the points that Justin and Jamila just made, which I think are really, really excellent points, and that I neglected in, in, in mentioning that, you know, I think that a lot of academic writing is just not good writing. I think that the academic writing is, the, the structure of academic writing doesn't allow for it to be good writing. And I think that what Jamila and Justin pointed out is that um, people are responding to that structure, that it's not, it's a, so it's not an, it's not, people aren't inherently um, uh, quote unquote, and we're not doing binaries here, but quote unquote bad writers, but actually they're responding to um, the, a form that says this is how you need to you need to constrain yourself in this way so I think that that's uh, just I, I want to just offer that up and I and and so much of what they shared is resonating with me when I went into grad school um, 
it was really difficult to write because that the writing, the way I, I, I needed to write to get a certain grade or to get a paper into whatever journal didn't align with who I knew myself to be as a writer. And so, you know, I, I adapted because that's what we do. We, we adapt to survive. Um, but I think that's also why people say things, I often hear people say things in the academy, like, I don't like writing. And I don't know that it's so much that we don't like writing as we don't like the type of writing that we have to do or that we're expected to do in this space. And, you know, I've also heard people say in the context of the academy, writing is scary, right? And again, I don't necessarily think that it's writing itself, the act itself of writing that is scary, but the, the fear comes from the knowledge that what you produce from a space of vulnerability, from a space of openness may not only not be received, it may be shunned. And so what I would say to um, emerging academics, and you know, I mean, we're mostly, not all of us here, but mostly junior scholars. But I would, what I would say to um, emerging scholars is to really lean into that fear that you can't actually do as with anything else in life. If you are constrained by that fear or that fear is, um, that fear is the thing that's driving you, then there's not, there's, you're limited, you're already limited in what you're able to produce. So what I would say is lean into that fear and distinguish between the writing that you have to do and the writing that you want to do. And as you look for spaces to do the writing that you want or, or to bring those things together, but it's okay to have that delineation and recognize that writing that you have to do to get an, you know, get a pub on your CV or whatever the case may be, doesn't define you as a writer, that your identity as a writer far exceeds what it is that you have to do in a particular space and is actually much more complex because your identity as a human being is complex. I want to jump in really quickly because it's, uh, I think, directly connected to Esther's point about fear um, and advice that I've been sort of taking a lot lately. So, um, you know, rightfully so, of course, uh, the the world that we live in can be critical, um, which is important because you're putting out ideas that can influence sort of and shape the ways people think. Um, but I think with that, uh, on this idea of leaning into fear is being okay sort of with where you are and the knowledge that you possess and knowing that like, it'll only continue to grow, but still sort of getting your work out there, getting your writing out there to different outlets and sort of receiving that feedback so that you can understand uh, how to get better. I used to always just like dislike, and it was so weird when I was a um, younger graduate student and all of these people who I knew were just brilliant, beautiful scholars. There was one line and I'm sure all of you have heard it. Oh, I hate my dissertation. It's the worst writing I've ever done. It's just like a thing. And I never really got it until I realized it's not that they're saying to Esther's point that it was like bad or like it was uh, destructive and violent, but like, oh no, like they are now just at a better writer they're they're uh, they've read more now than they did at that point and they sort of try new ideas and so they look back at that as a sort of a piece that they don't want to return to uh and so i think similarly um the whole career probably won't be like this but like when you're putting out articles or book proposals or grant writing like be okay right that is where you are in that moment and don't let that stop you from continuing and yes people will come back and you will come back and look at your ideas and say wow this argument was completely incomplete, 
but you know, like then you write new things, right? And you, you build on that. But I think that's something that space where I'm at and just understanding that this is a continual pursuit of knowledge and, and just to wrap it back into why our editorship for me has been so important, having sort of, uh, I hate this, you know, it's a academic word, but this sort of member checking where, um, you know, I'm not editing this journal alone. This is a collaborative process. So there are other people who can hold me accountable and say, hmm, this is good, but like, how can you think about this a little bit differently? Uh, and sort of, I think similar with our writing, like, you know, don't just be out here just submitting things blindly without having people sort of check and sort of pour into you and you pour into them, so. Uh, Justin just made me think about being a doctoral student at Emory and there was such a strong sense of cohorts there and uh, it felt like family, but it was the kind of family that, that you might, you know, you might hear when you read work about teachers being a warm demander, like black teachers being warm demanders who love students and have high expectations. And so it, it feels like one of the pieces I'd like to offer up is try to find a crew that loves on you and dotes on you and, you know, provides a space to exhale during, you know, what can be a really hard, <laughs> grueling, complicated time, you know, at least for, you know, for many folks engaging in graduate studies at whatever point in life can be, you know, really challenging. And so then you add this layer of writing in a form that's constraining. I think having some folk around you who are, you know, just as fluid in sharing theoretical ideas and sharing pieces as they are hanging out, you know, shooting the shit, just doing whatever. So, you know, I like the idea of being with a network of folks who are brilliant and ratchet. Like, you know, you can hang out and you can also study all night and write and share pieces. So for me, I think, you know, that's something that as a, on the other side of things, you know, beyond doctoral studies, you know, that's something that I crave now and something that, you know, I want now so that, you know, you can and, and maybe this goes back to also what we're trying to create with the journal, you know, being our full selves, um, which, which means, you know, being creative and, um, you know, and, and, you know, having this intellectual curiosity in all of its creative ways that it's shown. And so I think I would encourage doctoral students or graduate students to surround themselves by folk who are reading lots of different kinds of material, can talk about that material just as quickly as they can talk about what was late, you know, the latest thing on TikTok or Twitter or whatever, so that it feels like you're always sort of yourself pushing yourself and 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 enjoying it as much as possible, as, as much as one might enjoy, you know, being in, in, in graduate school. And then I just want to, you know, thank all the folks who came before us, because I feel like these possibilities and, and creative notions that we all have, and maybe, you know, it feels like they're beat out of you. I feel like there's some freedom that was created by having folks like, um, you know, folks who are um, came before us. So contemporaries, like um, not contemporaries, because that's not that. Um, folks like the Dillers, who we mentioned, the Maishas, the Valerie Kinlocks, the folks who have, you know, been a part of our CNV network, the Lee Patels folks who are out there writing in the ways that we're talking about um, and living out, you know, in ways that I think have set precedent for us and sort of invitations for us to, to, to lean into some of the things that we're talking about. So, you know, personally, I know that I wouldn't 
feel as inspired to do some of the things or feel the freedom to do some of the things if not having had the examples and not having you know read some of the actual pieces like you know um that we've been mentioning along the way in this podcast um to be able to push myself in my own thinking and and, and still emerging you know thinking and writing um i would add that there's something to be said about having a more transcendent approach to how you show up to the academy and I try to work with my grad students on this and ground, like I did instead of, I, I taught a doc seminar and I called it purpose or perish. Um, and, and really try to spend time having my grad students articulate their sense of purpose and calling in the world broadly, whether or not it's tethered to the academy and institutional validation, how you exist broadly, like it's something about that that will uh, set you free so that you don't feel rigidly beholden to whatever the academy is demanding of you. So at our um, our center launch, the center that uh, Dr. Green and I co-direct, we did the launch last weekend and we had a DJ kick off every session. And not everybody's like, why is there not a DJ at every Zoom meeting? Like what is going on? And it's because there are ways of knowing and being beyond, the academy don't know what it means, right? There are ways in, of being and knowing that we exist in organically that transcend the bounds and limitations of the academy that we we need to start to we need to render it valid for ourselves, right? And 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 center it and engage in it um, in ways that are just unapologetic. And so now people are like, oh, I guess we need DJs at um, academics uh, convenings, and I'm like, word, right? And so just all of the ways that that folks can 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 transcend and think about the things that this uh the rigidity of the academy um cannot see or refuses to see and being unapologetic in how you show up and that stuff 